to welcome you back. We have good company and a hard task. Our company are those people with sane minds who realize that at this time we find ourselves in, 2019, we stand on the edge of a knife, on the edge of a blade. We tilt a little and we can save civilization as we know it. We tilt to the other way, just a tiny bit, and we will build a hell on earth. I say we purposely, we will be, we are being forced to dirty our hands in its construction. But it's not too late. And you are here, and this is the place to be if you'd like to change things. Today we're going to talk about four lunatics. It's uh, when people talk about the revolution, I think one of the greatest, most dastardly lies they tell is that the revolutionaries were noble people. Well, I'm sorry, they were not. I'm sorry to disillusion you. Uh, this is the case with every revolution. There's not one, not one revolution I know of, dear listener, that I can say the revolutionaries were good people, let alone noble or some kind of, uh, some kind of hero. They were not. It's the case with the American Revolution as well. But in the French Revolution, we're going to examine four people, four men, who are absolute lunatics. I think you'll see the fact that they were so, so devoured by their lunacy, they went into a kind of ecstasy, hence the title for today's program. And there seemed to be almost a mass ecstasy of lunacy right on the verge of the revolution in France. And it just dominated culture, society, uh, strange behavior, strange fashion. It's just really, uh, it's strange and freakish. And I think most worryingly of all, you'll see a clear analog to today, which again is why we, the Fleur de Lis Club, are so adamant that the monarchy of France must be restored to its full glory because only in its full glory can it save us from the combine of capitalism and socialism, which is a sort of Keynesian big brother state we find ourselves, well, we find ourselves in right now, but it's not too late. And you must restore the king if you wish to have true justice. And that's what we're missing. We have millions of laws, but there's no justice. There's only sophism and eventually persecution of the Christians, because that's the, the heart of it. So we're taking a big view before we talk about uh, two particularly insane members of the Enlightenment. There would be the con man, Cagliostro, uh, really Joey, Joey Balsamo. Joey, 
Joey Balsamo from the East Side. Um, that's who the one man is, a, a Satan-worshipping charlatan. I'm not a nice fan. Not a nice man. And then uh, Mesmer. You've heard the word mesmerize, haven't you? Well, yes. It comes from the French Revolution, the dawn of it, where a quack built a whole following around strange experiments that electrified people, literally. Um, and we'll follow Mesmer. Uh, we'll follow his insanity soon enough. But before we do that, I want to give you a big picture. Look around the world today. Devoured by chaos. Everywhere you look. Chaos. Chaoses. We find ourselves in chaoses. This chaos is not an accident. This chaos is engineered. You see the blueprint of it in the French Revolution, and you hear the echo of it today. Why? Be so... This whole thing was engineered so that a new class of society, call them the, call them the bourgeoisie, the class of society just below the lowest rung of aristocracy and just more than regular people. Successful business people truly is what they are. And business always comes at another person's expense. Um, nonetheless, so that these people, we'll call them revolutionists, there's liberal revolutionists, example, John Locke, and radical revolutionists, example, Karl Marx, so that these groups of people could overthrow the established government, which had been in place for thousands and thousands of years with a great sense of tradition supporting it. Now, they are Big Brother, although Orwell, Eric Arthur Blair, genius though he was, was only mistaken very few times, only mistaken a very few times. One of those times, I would say, was that he did not see that Big Brother was already hundreds of years old. It's really Big Brother, really old brother. He came out of the French Revolution, not 1984. Well, how? How did the state, which is proactive, seeking to control your life, rather than the old true order, which is reactive, seeking to preserve what you have and the status quo. Well, you see, perhaps it's just easiest to say there's a paradox. The Freemasons, who are uh, the handmaidens of Satan and really who are at the heart of this whole thing, um, the Freemasons believe that chaos is conducive to control from chaos order. In an orderly situation, and I've, we've spoken of this before, one cannot have total power over another. Yet chaotic situations, and the more chaotic and the more desperate, the better from this perspective, necessitate this relationship of one having power over another in order to survive. And now, having outlined how chaos and revolutionism is somewhat of a paradox, I won't go too far down this road. It's not the road back home, after all. It is the road to hell. Um, but I will... I will follow up that thought, actually, by following the road to hell, because that's where revolutionism first began.
whether or not you believe in the devil, it's been often said, is irrelevant because he believes in you and he's a very real creation. He's a creation and he, well, you can learn about him. You know the story of our broken world of original sin. Now, you may disagree with it, but the fact of the matter is the evidence is there in your own life, in your own conscience, speaking to you, speaking to you the truth. The foundation of legitimism, my friend, is natural law, which is a reflection of supernatural law, the mind of God, how things are supposed to be. Revolutionism began at the dawn of creation. We'll get to that. And I haven't lost sight of the four lunatics either. Bear with me. The point is that whether or not turning to the French Revolution from this, from the fall of Satan cast down from heaven by St. Michael, whether or not there was a conspiracy of persons. Now, we've discussed people with agendas, the Duke d'Orléans, for example, who launched a number of conspiracies. But we truly do not know if there was a grand overarching conspiracy, although I tend to believe that, or whether there were simply many conspiracies that came together. That is to say, whether or not it was a conspiracy of persons that organized to consciously launch the revolution, or a conspiracy of processes is immaterial. Now, what is a conspiracy of processes? I, may, I have coined this term myself, I think, but I think it's apt and it fits. A conspiracy of processes antithetical to God and humanity and that runs almost on automatic was intentionally created and preternaturally inspired by hell. Now, what is a conspiracy of processes? Well, for example, say I wanted to make sure that I was an ice cream magnate. I wanted to make sure 100 years from now, everybody's going to eat strawberry ice cream. Do you suppose there are steps I could take today while I'm alive? Business steps, real steps, managerial steps to ensure this would come true? Certainly. I would have a sound business plan. I would corner the market, horizontal integration, all of that. The point is, if I really wanted to, and I was an ice cream mogul, I could ensure that people would eat strawberry ice cream 100 years from now in a very similar way, but a much more diabolical methodology is true of the revolutionists. They wanted to ensure that hundreds of years after their revolution, they would still be in power, the liberal wing and the radical wing. And so what's they, that's what they've done. Now, this is a good point for me to take a step back again and bash the political spectrum. It's an illusion. It's fake light. The versions of history forced upon us and an increasingly less literate population, they're all false. They're all fake constructions. They're fake paradigms designed to distract people from the central fact. And as I said in the first program, the pilot actually, the central fact is this, one or zero, yes or no, God or not. You're either on the side of heaven or you're on the side of hell. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You are in that position with God or you are in a position outside of God. And if you are outside of God, he is moving away from you. These two positions are the only positions and they're not static. We are, in a way, humanity, something like in a lifeboat. 
And we've gone on our lifeboat called original sin and self-will and all these different things that, that humanity chose. And God, the ship, is moving away from us. So not only are we becoming farther and farther situated from that which can save and nourish us, but the longer we stay away, the greater the prospect of total nihilism and entropy is. Monarchy is aligned to God. There were, if we were to somehow miraculously ensure the enthronement of his most Christian majesty, Louis XX, the king of France right now, that little boat, those little oars would be pumping and we'd be going straight back to the ship, the ship of God. Revolutionism is against God, however. So we're sitting on our little boat, and not only are things getting darker, is the boat getting farther away, but on, the, on, our, little, on our little skiff, things are becoming more and more insane. That's how it is. We are becoming more and more separated from God. Now, I'm going to finish my point, my friend. It must be made. God is the cause of everything. God is. He sustains the universe. Christ sustains his creation. Now, society and its institutions, therefore, which exist in creation, ought to be reflective of God. And it's at this point we can bring up first principles again, a second time, you might say. Pioneered by Aristotle, not by Elon Musk, thank you very much, and brought to its highest philosophy by St. Thomas Aquinas, Bird's principles demonstrate the superiority of cause over effect. A greater cause will always give a lesser effect. It takes two parents to create one child. The greater goes to the lesser. Now, when, when society and its effects are aligned in right order with the first causes, with God, then excellence follows. It's like having a master chef prepare a dish using the finest and richest ingredients. It's going to be good. We don't have that. As a matter of fact, we are enmeshed in the schemes of revolutionism and its desire to illegally take power. It's fact of having illegally taken power. And if this revolutionism continues, then we are moving closer and closer to becoming demonic ourselves. We are, we are rowing our little boat, to use that analogy, straight over the maw into hell. Now, whether it masquerades, I'm going to get to the liberal and radical right here. I'm fixing to do that. Whether it masquerades as the desire for so-called economic justice or as a means to gain political rights, revolutionism is fundamentally geared to overthrow established society and its legitimate institutions using unestablished fringe groups, using the marginal, the insane, as we learned from Assure, these characters they brought in to begin the revolution in Paris, brought in from the South, Marseille, I believe. Now, in brief, there are two schools of revolutionism. They began as one, they fractured, and they're in the process of recombining. I would refer you again to our excellent pamphlet, um, which can be found linked on our website. Just go to the document page and you'll find it there. The liberal path of revolutionism, uh, probably John Locke is its visionary, 
draws on abstract suppositions for credibility. What do I mean by that? The man who said that all men are born equal, which is, and I'm not being unkind, that's objectively untrue. And this is John Locke who came up with that theory, I suppose. There is frequently more to be learned from the unexpected questions of a child than the discourses of men. How is that possible? How can we learn more from a child babbling goo goo gaga than people speaking with logic and reason? He goes on, do I dare set forth here the most important, the most useful rule of all education? It is not to save time, but to squander it. Madness, madness. This madness is used to cloak genocide though, as the French Revolution showed us. The liberal seeks ideology to support his position. We, the Declaration of Independence, the rights of the man and the citizen, and our French topic. Fundamentally, though, they craft an ideology that's very flimsy, based on really the pleasure principle of uh, that demonic man, Bentham, Jeremy Bentham, founder of utilitarianism. They search for ideas. Now, they came first, it might be said. They usually come first, because the idea people we usually accept them better than someone who knocks at our door with a crowbar in their hands and says they're going to brain us and then rob our house. So first we get the ideas, but then we get the radical. That's the second track of revolutionism. Now the radical, you may call a communist, you may call a socialist, you may call a progressive. The point is that they use material disparity. Some people are rich and some are poor to justify their revolutionary programs. Liberal revolutionism is the idea track. They draw on new ideas, like the social contract, which is insane and doesn't really exist. Whereas the radical draws on more visceral, material things. You're rich, I want it, give it to me now, or I'm gonna kill you. But both schools of revolution have been discredited, haven't they? The USSR collapsed and stayed the communist world. It was a failed experiment. So too, however, has the liberal track, that is the government of the United States, approach collapse. For all their ideas, they have not been able to affect them, which should have been very simple if those are the true laws of the universe, according to the Freemasons, but they're not, are they? No, instead what you have is a recombination. The radical gives up their visceral material comeuppance, and instead moves to ideas, just as the liberal, realizing that the ideas are no longer getting any traction, begins to move to more dis material disparities. This is the story of the 20th century and the rise of Keynesian economic theory. It's a mix. It's an amalgam of socialism and capitalism. It's a, the re, it is, in short, the recombination. Liberalism, unable to create a society of just laws and social harmony, radical, the radicalism failing to eliminate material poverty, there remains only the option, which they chose, to recombine. And this is precisely the situation the Western world finds itself in today. The nation, which is commonly called the welfare state, which operates under the Keynesian economic system, is the amalgam of liberalism and radicalism, and it consists probably of 90% of the economies in the world today. Now, 
Why? Why does the revolutionary seek to control others? Why are these four freaks and lunatics we're going to study important? Why are they emblematic of the revolution? Liberalism and radicalism have shed their differences in favor of their one core agreement, which is the raison d'etre of revolutionism, power. Revolutionaries want it. They want to wield it. They want to make it. They want to dispense it. But above all, they want to keep it. That is their goal. Whether it's masquerading today as a desire for so-called economic justice, the 99% against the 1%, or tomorrow becomes a means to gain more political rights, whatever they might be, revolutionism everywhere and always must have causa sweet, the same goal the overthrow of the established and legitimate rule of society by unestablished and illegitimate, preferably, as history shows, raucously illegitimate, minority. In this dynamic, revolution reveals itself as true to its origin. That is to say, it always and everywhere mimics the rebellion of a third of the heavenly host against God, and it is directed still by the leader of that rebellion, Lucifer, we're getting very metaphysical here, but we had to. It must be said. If this is so, and it is, we must ask why. Why did Lucifer, and this is conjecture, I'm not speaking for the church, but I'm not drawing my ideas out of thin air either. There's a long, millennium-long series of Christian thought on this matter. Why did Lucifer rebel? Why? He was the greatest of the angels, the Bible tells us, the light bearer. His name tells us, why did he rebel against the supreme and unending kindness, goodness, righteousness of God? Why do adherents of revolutionism always and everywhere continue their ceaseless effort to overthrow the rule of law and society, often to their own harm and detriment? The answer, I think, is going to shock you for a moment. But I think you're going to very quickly realize it's intuitive. It is the reasoning of a two-year-old child when they're told to hush up at the shop. I don't want to, says the kid. So said the devil when told to obey the plan of the Lord God's creation. Non serviam, I will not serve. From that moment of rejection, there can then follow only one logical conclusion. And this is what the child says. I don't want to, but it follows. I do want to do this. Non serveam, objected the prince of demons. Shortly thereafter, he declared, Melius regnare in inferno quan servire in cielo. Better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. What is the common denominator of revolutionaries here, which ties them into the four psychos we're going to go into now? Monsieur will be joining us presently, by the way. Power, control. They want to seize power and wield it over others. That is the raison d'etre of revolutionism. George Orwell, brilliant man, brilliant writer, perhaps the most brilliant in the past century, wrote magnificently about how it's going to play out. He got Big Brother's birthday a little wrong, but there is no mistaking when Big Brother comes into his own. Who was the single greatest figure behind the French Revolution? I don't know. The Duc d'Orléans, certainly. 
Weishaupt, perhaps, the Illuminati Freemason out of Bavaria. But there are four people, I think, and history historians would agree with me, who by studying give us a deep insight into the mechanics of revolution in full swing. There's four people, four horsemen of the apocalypse, you might say. You wouldn't be far off. There is the diabolist, the devil worship, Joey Bassamo from the east side, a failed Neapolitan monk who was kicked out of his order for witchcraft, basically. And he brought his skills to France right before the revolution, to Paris especially, really, not France, to Paris. And it shows just how far gone the intelligentsia were that while they mocked the church with its logic and reason, they flocked to a man who claimed to have the ability to summon Satan on demand and to have a chat with him. Nothing wrong there, eh? Then there is the doctor, the psychotic doctor, Dr. Franz Mesmer. You've heard that word before, mesmerized. One of the sickest, craziest men you'll read about or learn about. And I think a man whose strange and sinful experiments presage the strange and sinful revolution. So we have the doctor, the diabolist, the debauchee, Mirabeau, Mirabeau, a wastrel. And of course, in a category of his own, we have Danton. Danton, Mirabeau, Mesmer, Cagliostro, really Joseph Balsamo. These four people ran us a mind into the psychosis of revolution, into the mania of it, into the lunacy and ecstasy of revolution. So sit tight. Don't let the science fight and don't let the enlightenment fright. Hang tight. We'll be back in a few moments and we'll discuss Mesmer and his experiments. And believe you me, they truly are. Welcome back from the break, ladies and gentlemen. That is some weird science indeed. <laughs> That's some weird science we're going into. And uh, here at the bottom of the hour, we would like to welcome our friend, Monsieur, to the program. Uh, bonjour, Monsieur. How are you this uh, afternoon or evening for you, I suppose? Oh, oui, c'est le, c'est le soir. It's the evening, actually. And I'm very pleased to talk to you again. It's been quite a while since we had a moment to chat, and it's always a pleasure for me to be talking to you about these very important matters which concern us all in a, th- in a There's sense. There's nothing more important, and though we're few, we're growing, and as Mother Teresa, St. Teresa said, even though we're a drop in the ocean, the ocean would still be less without that drop. 
and quotation, oh, uh, yes. Now, now let's turn to a, sort of a poisoned ocean, the beginning of the program, on the very eccentric, comma, I would say insane persons, the four horsemen of the French apocalypse, if you will, though we don't quite know who the Antichrist is. So I want to take you, lady or gentlemen, dear all, on a little journey, uh, 1789 Paris in the spring. And say you're feeling a bit ill. Uh, you have too much magnetism in your mind or something like that. Well, then you pop on down to Franz Anton Mesmer's salon, where you'll find the gentleman wearing gold slippers and a lavender silk robe. No need to see a real doctor. This is, this is where we're going now. We have in the center of the room a baquet, a large oak tub of magnetized water, electric water, ladies and gentlemen. Now, you at this tub, you see a collection of your friends and your associates holding hands and every now and then getting electrified from the current within, which sends them into spasms of ecstasy, whereupon an attendant of the good doctor will pick them up and drag them into the other room. And if they're a pretty lady, they go into a special room with padded walls to get further treatment. Now, this is actually frighteningly contemporary, monsieur, but I would say it also shows the depths of the intellectual and moral depravity to which the elite had sunk prior to the revolution itself, that a con man like Mesmer was in vogue. Yes, indeed. I'm listening to you very carefully, yes. It's indeed, and so going on to talk about this man, and if you look at his picture, ladies and gentlemen, you see a madman staring back at you. It's, his unorthodoxy began in 1774, trained in the East, in the Austrian Empire, under the, I'm not making this up, under the tutelage of a controversial and later blasphemous Jesuit named Maximilian Hell. His last name was Hell. And true? It is true, absolutely. Maximilian Hell was his mentor's name. Oh, I just don't, it's no joke. Um, he attached magnets to his patients in order to treat disease, according yes. to the, his thoughts, to greater or lesser potency. And of course, Anton Mesmer took this practice off to France, where he promptly, promptly began hypnotizing and putting under electric currents the creme de la creme of Parisian society. And the, the teachings of the church, they were passé. Uh, the, the basically, the basic assumptions of health, we don't need those. They went into strange and freakish new directions in terms of their health care much as they did with their politics. Just as nowadays we have people who say the earth is flat, um, we have people who don't take inoculations, um, we're going in that direction. Look at, look at what goes on on a Hollywood Saturday night, ladies and gentlemen. Could you imagine? It would make Franz Mesmer blush. And I thought that eccentric and really evil person, sir, was a good way for us to introduce another evil fellow, the second horseman of the apocalypse, if you will, which I believe you were going to speak of. Well, wow. yes, absolutely. But then uh, I would have to say a few things about Mesmer. Oh, please, please, you go ahead, Matt. I, I don't know him very well. It's only a few things that I have read that apparently he became extremely rich. Yes. And you got plenty of aristocrats who were taken in. Among them, principally, you would have members of the court and Lafayette as well. And Lafayette was so much taken with the electric magnetism <laughs> of the guy that he spent a huge fortune to, to, to become a member because Mesmer was a very clever guy, you know. They were all trying to make money. And they Times were all interconnected, Danton with Mesmer, with Cagliostro, yes, who we'll talk yes. about later, with uh, Robespierre. And the thing that, that strikes me so much about 
these con men really dominated France and controlled it. They controlled the elite of society. People were paying money for this, paying money to summon Satan. This was... Yes. Yeah, may I, may I say as well that if you are ill or if you think you are ill and if you can, if you can find a sorceress going to or a, yes. a witch who's going to cure you of your disease and if you have some money you're going to pay for it, you know. Besides, don't forget that at these meetings where you had the aristocracy, they were, would mix, you know, they would be singing, they would be hand, hand, clasping their hands, coming yeah. in close contact. Yeah. And they could do many other things as well. Running, running well, electric currents through their bodies. Yes, of course, and getting hypnotized, you know. And Can you then, imagine, sir, the heroes of the so-called revolution were sitting in the room of a quack, holding hands, having an electric current pass through their body. Do you know whether Danton belonged to these uh, particular meetings? I'm not sure. I Obviously, don't know. I was I, not either, you know. Um, I, they are in different classes. I'm not sure of that, but what, I, what I've noticed is we've done this research, and fresh in my research, is that they all are connected. They're traveling in the same circles, and they're pulling the strings of Parisian society like puppets, these, these four men. That's why I chose them. They're emblematic of, was there a hidden hand, or were there many hidden hands? I don't know. But well, there's one, we're connected. Yes, absolutely. There were many hidden hands. Most of these hands were uh, working with the bankers. Bankers came from Geneva or from Bavaria or from Prussia, and there were the hidden hands of the French Revolution. And they, would, they were very clever because they would give money, particularly if you consider Mirabeau. Mirabeau oh, is trying, Yeah, yeah, that, but, but Mirabeau in particular was under the guidance of Clavier. Clavier was a, 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 um, a Genevan banker who was extremely rich and was very much into speculation. Already in the Ancien Regime, he was very, very uh, much acquainted with the high society and he would be in contact with Calonne and they would have Mirabeau write pamphlets to make sure that the speculation would go in the right direction. And what would Mirabeau do? Because he wanted money, because he was a womanizer from beginning to end, that he was spending huge fortunes uh, on his uh, mistresses, he was always broke. And the bankers made a point to give him money so that, that he could continue. But of course, we'll talk about Mirabeau on a special episode you know, because he's a guy on his own and is worth listening, uh, being better known, actually. But to come back to your point, um, the, these bankers were the main, well, there were, we, we said that many times. Yes. There were plenty well, of- say it again. Yeah, there were plenty of uh, uh, reasons why the French Revolution took place at the time it took place. You can, can consider the, the, uh, the climate, there was a definite uh, factor the, which played a role because the, the rural areas were starving in a sense. You but know? there had always been agricultural rebellions in medieval Europe. A rebellion wasn't unheard of. Yes, yes. And, and actually, uh, all things considered, the French population was better off than most of the continental there's, Europe. There's no doubt to about it. The, to say nothing of the British, you yeah, see. In enlightened England at the same time, people were getting hung in the market square for stealing a pie. Um, so that's what's Which wouldn't happen in France, because the king, uh, particularly during Louis XVI's reign, 
made a point to improve greatly all the French prisons. Yes. So much so that a report was made and a comparison was made rather between the European prisons and the best treatment were provided in the French prisons. And it's a, famous anecdote. Yeah. it's a famous anecdote that Morapa would say there was a prison gang that was going to be marched by Versailles. He said, certainly not. If the king saw them, he'd free all of them. Yeah, well, you see, the thing is, Louis was um, a very good king. We've said it many times, and he, and he, and he introduced many reforms in all types of areas. Honestly, the, the French prisons, we're not even talking about La Bastille and these luxury prisons, you see, yes. where you were only a few guys who were imprisoned because they were under a lettre de cachet, you know, the king's yes. uh, sealed letter. We discussed that, yes. Yeah, the initiative of the family most of the time who wanted to get rid of the, uh, the, the what shall I say, the... The black, uh, the black sheep of the family. Oh yeah, we can give a name, you know, par example, a Marquis de Sade. Maybe that will ring yeah. a bell for people. Um, about well, yeah, but do you know, by the way, that the Marquis de Sade was connected from, he had family ancestors close to Mirabeau. I have and no doubt. An episode here, which is very interesting because they happened to meet uh, once in the in the prison, I think it was in the Vincennes, <laughs> and Mirabeau uh, was under the fiery attack of the of the of Sad because Sad wanted to know who that guy was, and Mirabeau was not giving his identity, and he got absolutely crazy. And you know, Sad who was was a very sadistic character, probably, and he kept shouting at him all times. You know, that was the first time they, they met. Afterwards, Good. I don't know what happened, but um, it's unbelievable. La Bastille in particular, you know, Saad had so many books, he could have a, a very nice table, he would have waiters, and uh, these were luxury prisons. Yes. Nothing to do with the idea which has been conveyed of the French Revolution, where they are taking down the Bastille, which is the symbol of the absolutism and what despotism. Nonsense. It's, it's real nonsense. It's crap. I'm sorry to say. It is crap. It's crap. And I want to say just a big point before we go into Danton. The thing I think that fundamentally drew me to the legitimist movement that made me aware of the French Revolution is a, a real fundamental hate of that, what they've done. They had everything. They know they were a developing country, of course, France at this time, but they, had, they were the world's leader in technological innovation, agriculture, all these wonderful things. They were having a more and more balanced monarchy. So Louis XVI, would be ideal, I, he would be, uh, he would stand alone among presidents nowadays for his generosity and his goodness. They had all these elements, like moving towards a really, I would say almost a perfect equilibrium with, with balance in the, you know, between the past and the future, the agricultural and the uh, industrial, and they destroyed it just because they could. The people, the, and fundamentally, the people who led the revolution, conspiracy large or conspiracy small, they broke something just to see what it would be like to break it. And that's what I well, really hate yeah, about it. France, France was a lab. It was a lab for the revolutionaries. But yes. definitely this uh, testing of the French population through the rebellions was done with the purpose of finally crushing the monarchy, destroying Christianity, yeah. destroying Catholicism. I'm not talking about any other religion. I'm talking specifically about Catholicism. Oh, absolutely. Look, no look at what happened during the terror. 
where they crushed, uh, where they killed as many priests as they could. They murdered them in, during the September massacres. Massacres, I believe, Monsieur, is a perfect time to bring up that. I don't know what the word is. He's a he's a Simeon-like man, uh, Danton. So, if you would please tell us about this man. Yeah. So let's 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 start it. Let, let's talk about Danton. Yes. Uh, the connection that I can make here is that Danton was the Minister of Justice when the September massacres took place. Uh, was it uh, 1792? Exactly, I think it was. September. And yes, yes. They, this, and it's an interesting episode in itself because apparently that guy, and we're going to refer to him in detail, that guy was extremely powerful. You know, he had he had such a stamina. He had such a. Uh, uh, he was uh, just like Hitler, I guess. He was. He looked like a gorilla. He looks yeah, like a gorilla. But, but in his he, he was a gorilla. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, that guy said, I do, do not care at all whether all these uh, people are killed. The idea behind that, when they killed, when they massacred, you know, all the, about 3,000 aristocrats and the priests, yes. well, they were, basically, they were uh, massacred because it was a message that the French revolutionaries wanted to send to the enemies of the, of the country. And the must, of the we must spell it out for them. Exactly. We must spell it out for the audience, sir. When they were massacred, they were not shot. They were hacked to pieces with knives. Yeah, actually, you know, they, you had a band of brigands, you know, the thugs. Yes. Who had been recruited for that particular purpose, and they had the True. list. They knew, knew, knew exactly what they were doing. And there was, there was uh, absolutely no um, people left on the side. As soon as you were on the list, you would be killed. You would be, uh, and the Princesse de Lamballe, was it the Princesse de Lamballe? I think yes. got, that savagely 
cut to pieces. She was, and, they took her flesh from her bones and it yes. was... It's, a, it's unspeakable. indescribable, is it not? Yes, it is. But then it's an orgy, an orgy of bestiality. Yep. <clears throat> it's a debauchery of uh, lust, and because they would violate, you know, they would rape. Oh, the it was. It would have. If they you would do seen, all the things you can imagine, and even be much beyond what you can imagine. It's, it's so treasure. It more than any other time I think in history that I know of, perhaps with the exception of the rape of Nanjing. What was going on in the French Revolution during that period of time would have resembled someone's worst nightmares from hell. It's the event horizon we speak about, the movie. It is like when you see what hell looks like. That's what would have been going on in the streets of Paris. Yes, absolutely. So it's interesting to have a look now at the career of that Danton because he started as a young lawyer. He was a petty lawyer. He was not, he was from a, he was not from an aristocratic background, but his father was also in the legal business. His father was some sort of a solicitor. And then afterwards, uh, when he was very young, when he was about one year old, apparently he got kicked by a bull and who cut his, his uh, upper lip, his, his left upper lip. And he, was, he had that mark on his lips. Then afterwards, it's funny because he had other encounters with a bull or, or cows. It is said in the literature that uh, in the provinces, in the countryside, the, the, young, <clears throat> the young babies or infants that would be uh, sucking the, the teats of the, of the cows, you know, to get the milk. Yes. And apparently a bull came around and kicked him uh, with his uh, uh, foot or his, uh, uh, the, the, the foot of the, the bull, you know, and as a result he, he fell and he was uh, also... Uh, Badly injured, he was about to die, and he had these two encounters with the bull. It's very interesting and very strange in the sense that he had what a what a wonderful myth for the creation of the republic. For example, in Rome, you had the wolves nursing the yeah, absolutely, and for the what French republic, you have a cow cow sucking. In the literature, I think it says that when he was seven, uh, he was extremely extremely strong and sinewy and. Uh, he was developing fast and he wanted to encounter a bull as well and, and he wanted to fight a bull. Maybe this is a legend, I do not know, but I've read it. And as a result, you know, the bull was stronger than he was and he was kicked to the side again. And he, was, uh, he, was, uh, he was almost, his nose was almost crushed. So not only his lip was cut and left, left a mark throughout his life, but his, his nose got crushed by the foot, the kick uh, uh, of the bulls, uh, you know. Um, so, so that's another episode. And then later, a regular then, bull kicker. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Just like, a, you know, it's a, a, bull, a bull ring, shall I yes, say. Yes, yes. Anyway, anyway, afterwards, there was another encounter with some herds of pigs, and they almost uh, put him in a lake or something. He was about to be drowned. Boy, see? old man dancing no, down on the farm, boy. So that's all for him. And then got smallpox, you see. So that's cool. why his, his face was ravaged with, with these marks, you see. Oh, my God. He was definitely it's extremely ugly. Like a circus and, freak, almost. Oh, yes, you're right. And then it's very interesting because there are two uh, features here which I think are interesting to consider. First, he was extremely ugly, just like Mirabeau. Secondly, he was just as strong as a bull, just like Mirabeau. And also, both of them had extremely good stentor voices. Now, this is extremely important, because if you want to be noticed in a crowd, 
if you are trying to cheer, you know, the population, you must yes. have a very strong voice. Particularly at the time, there was there was no megaphone, there was no um, loudspeakers, and you have to use your vocal cords to be heard. And the, he had such a stentor voice that everybody would stop and listen. You see, yeah. it's also a very important physical detail. So he was aware of that, and he even said at one point, if I'm not, uh, if I remember well that nature had uh, endowed him with these athletic features and oh, also nature God. had endowed him with the feeling of liberty and for him liberty meant so many things you know it meant uh, uh, chasing women that's for sure it meant uh, doing everything he wanted just He's like, like the napoleon the pig from animal farm this creature oh. Well, that's, this is an interesting comparison. You know, it's, I, I think that briefly we're going to have a break here in a moment, Monsieur, and I wanted to give our audience something to think about on the break. I want them to think about those, those fashionable girls out there having a salad at the cafe and they're giggling about revolution. I would like them to get their desserts, to meet their heroes. Can you imagine what would happen to those nice little ladies when they see Dan Tan stumble into the room, followed by Mirabeau, and yeah. you know, followed up by Mesmer and Cagliostro? Those oh, girls... Ugly features. Yes. Ugly, bellowing, crazy-eyed lunatics. They would run out of that room as quick as they saw these creatures. Um, uh, well, you know, by the way, that Mirabeau had another had a, a, a brother who became called Mirabeau Tonneau, which is a barrel, you know? Oh. Why was he called Mirabeau Barrel? Because he was so fat and he had been drinking so much beer that he was, he was uh, known all over, all over the place as Mirambo Tunnel, but the, the barrel, but that's the barrel. brother, by the way. But well, I'd like to add, we have to do, I just would like to say something else here, because <clears throat> these guys are extremely ugly. Yes. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got a very effeminate uh, guy who's Robespierre. Who is totally different, like he has no voice. He has no voice, he has a very small little uh, flute voice, you know. And uh, he's got a powdered wig. He's got terrified some. Terrified of getting dirty. Sorry. They're terrified of getting dirty. You know. You know. Just, uh, well, it's always he, he. He had that. Yeah. He had that particular uh, problem. You know. <clears throat> you wouldn't like. Well. So what I want to say there is that you have the two extremes. You have on the one hand people like Mirabeau. Mirabeau was an aristocrat in a certain sense, and Danton was regarded like uh, um, uh, was called. The Mirabeau of the gutter. The mirror of the gutter. So these two, these, you, you understand what I mean? Yes, yes. It's the, one is the in the gutter, the other one is an aristocrat, but they are both of the same um, sort, okay? And on the other, end of the, the other end of the spectrum, you've got a guy like uh, Robespierre, who's, who's totally crazy, by the way, is and totally we, crazy, and oh, always yeah. feeling that somebody's plotting against him. So oh, these were the guys who were going to frame the French Revolution. He, he ruled the security case. committee like a, like a, you know, like a paranoid Yenta would have. But I think the, the, another interesting point here to introduce someone just a little bit ahead of time, but to add to the supervillain theme that we're constructing is Marat, who actually oh, yes. for a period of time lived in the sewers of the city, <laughs> like a literal supervillain. Yeah, and actually Robespierre didn't like Marat at all. But you know, at, during the revolution, all these guys would mix and they would, it was, they were jostling for power. And at one time they would rely on one and then on the other, at other times they would rely on another one, you see. Uh, but they were all as crazy. Maybe uh, we can even think, consider 
that the, the least crazy of that bunch would have been Danton in a certain sense, or, uh, because Marat, Marat was really looking for blood. All he was time. a psychotic, he was a psychopath. Yeah, and, and even among the revolutionaries, they were a bit afraid of him because he was going to such extremes, you know, yeah. and uh, he, got his, he got his fate, uh, hopefully, uh, with uh, Charlotte Corday. Well, God bless her heart, but I mean, God bless her, Charlotte Corday, but he deserved worse than what he got. And um, oh, I think... Yes, yeah, absolutely. And indeed, though he deserved far worse than he got, we deserve much better than we're getting. But we will get it. Our day will come. Notre jour viendra. And remember, on the road ahead, there is a way back home. You can travel it if you wish. You can save those you love by traveling. God bless and keep you all. Until the next time, be well. Gloria